there will be no real non-controlled currency in the world. Exciting time to be involved in Bitcoin Cash at the moment. During that whole war of lightning versus big blocks, like were we the bad guys? Were we the ones that weren't listening? Fundamentally, we believe in markets, transparency, and tokenization. Come on, you gotta come stronger than that, you know, like. Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Cash podcast. Following Bitcoin Cash on its rise to global reserve currency, same as always. This is episode number 72's BCH Ball and Townsville Adoption featuring Jonathan Silverblood. Today is Saturday, the 18th of February, 2023. I am your host, Jeremy Jett, is in the producer's chair, same as always. And our guest today is a very prominent and well-respected Bitcoin cash developer, does some work at the protocol level, does some work with general protocols on BCH Bull, which we're going to be talking about today. And I believe it's been around in the Bitcoin scene for quite a while. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself and how do you get into Bitcoin? Thank you for having me. So my name is Jonathan Silverblood. I first learned about Bitcoin in 2011 something when a friend asked about it and I quickly dismissed it as if it ever became important, government would just smack down and be done with it. It uh, took me until 2013 and for some reason another friend asked me about it and I'm like, why is this not dead yet? And I started reading about it and the coming many years I spent multiple hours every day very consistently just trying to figure out like what is this what makes it valuable why hasn't it disappeared and learned quite a bit along those lines so that's that, that's where i started and did you come at it more from a tech you know some people come from a tech angle some people come from an economic angle some people come from a kind of political angle what what was it that got your attention so but back in those days uh, i i was not as political as i am uh, today, uh, it was mostly a, a tech angle and uh, like, holy shit, this solves actual problem uh, situation. Um, I remember being very, very curious about the possibility of having a more decentralized and open internet by having payment channels and paper byte streams and wondered like, why, why don't people upgrade their routers and just share their internet for, for money? Why, why not earn money from people using the internet? And well, nowadays it's because you're legally liable for whatever they do and no one wants to be legal, legally liable for others. So yeah, that, that, that never really took off. Uh, I'm hoping it still will at some point though. Mm -hmm. Like mesh networks, I've, I've always loved the idea of mesh networks, even though it never yeah. really seems to have come to much in practice. Absolutely. And so, like, what, what are we missing you can there? Stream too. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, the, the whole streaming money perspective is, is woefully underappreciated. Like, if you if you go to the pump uh, to fill up your car, then at least where I live, like you first need to put your credit card in and then like give them some number of money to reserve on your card that doesn't match what you're actually gonna get. And then after you've filled up your car, it's a not fun waiting game that could be quick or it could be weeks before you get 
the difference of your money back. In a few cases, I've actually even had the even worse situation where they made a reservation first and then they figure out how much gas I took and then they ask for that money on top of the reservation and then it took me weeks to get the reservation back. Uh, but, you know, measuring gasoline by the liter in real time in a payment channel and stop providing gas unless your app stops sending cash your way it's a fully valid use case that removes a bunch of fraud and problems and it also means that when when you leave the station no one can continue to take money from you uh, just a couple months ago uh, while I was driving back home from uh, being abroad uh, I tanked up and then I headed on the ferry and the day after I noticed there were additional charges on my card most likely someone had put some skimmer thing on the device or some other shenanigans and I ended up having to you know send a bunch of support emails and explain the situation and whatnot. It cost me a bunch of time and money. I don't like that. I would much rather have a streaming solution where I stream money to them and they stream service to me. Yeah. It's something I've really been noticing as well too with yeah just with the bank cards and, and stuff in general is you do pick up here and there like somebody i had a similar situation when somebody took my card and they started uh putting through charges and the first one that came in i thought oh this is weird i'm not you know at this shop buying this thing but it, the 10 pounds just came in and then 30 seconds later another one came in for like 20 pounds and i was like okay i gotta i gotta, I gotta put a stop to this as fast as uh possible and then they kept trying even after it was kind of cut off right but you're in this scenario where over small amounts of money you're maybe it's not even necessarily worth my time to go and chase down what happened to the card to argue for a refund to do this and that i did end up getting the money back but over like small fraud is such a, an annoying window it's the similar with the court system right there's like small claims court and what have you but when you have a a, a problem but a smallish problem one that's not worth diverting your life to fight over it's just in that awkward middle ground of do i even bother with this or do i just take it as the cost of doing business and and move on kind of thing so i can see how yeah payment channels could help help with a lot of that but well, do you well, see credit card fraud as a business is humongously large. We're talking so lots of millions or even billions of dollars on a yearly basis that is extracted from that system that could have been used to empower the people who actually legitimately uh, own that value. And do you see the this kind of like payment channels technology, do you see it more likely to be integrated sort of in the background? So for instance, you could have a, a system where trying to can swap everyone over onto a bch type of system might be you know too much of a leap but if you can build that in the background and then package it up so that it plugs into some existing you know uh kind of like pump infrastructure then that like they might not even know that it's bch payments that are being sent in the background and then maybe even converted back into you know us dollars or some fiat currency or something at, at the end of it i can see like the savings could potentially be big enough on the fraud that you could afford to cover some some like transfer fees and stuff like that to run it all without disrupting the user because that's where i can see people being a bit like overwhelmed by it i i think the biggest hindrance to to that wonderful future is simply regulation uh if if it was possible for someone to technically set up a situation where you don't have the middlemen 
so you don't need to rely on a third party in order to do the transaction, then the cost of doing the transaction goes down and they get a competitive advantage. Uh, if I were to choose where to fill up my gas and I could choose two different stations where one of them has a cheaper price because they don't have to pay the middleman, why wouldn't I use that? It's not that the technology is even hard to do. It's not that hard. People built these pump meters, uh, payment channels back in what is 2015. Uh, the, the technology exists there. The problem is that you need to be allowed to do it. So maybe yeah. we need some more. Maybe we need some more lawyers in the in the crypto ecosystem. It sounds like you know we're doing okay on the on the developer front, but we we need some more some more lawyers. So with coming to to crypto so what were you doing before that then if you i assume that you've been a developer for a very long time but that might not necessarily be the case right right so if we're going back before the the bitcoin time then uh, sure i was a developer uh, if you could call it that uh, i'm self-taught and uh -huh. i all the best ones was simply are. interested in making video games uh that's that's all there is to it so i started writing in um qbasic uh back on the I think the first machine I had that actually wrote basic on is a 086, so no storage devices. Uh, I wrote poems for girls I liked when I was 10, 15 somewhere, I can't remember exact pinpoint date here, uh, where I tried to learn like trigonometry because I wanted a heart to rotate. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just been hobby things on my end uh, all the way. Uh, and then... I got a job at a telemarketing sales company to kind of help them get rid of some paperwork, um, digitize some of the things and, and send it over the internet instead of using the post office and a bunch of hardly legible papers. And that opportunity was supposed to last for like two weeks where I built an, an alternative, a web-based system where the salesman just filled in numbers and clicked checkboxes and then just sent everything in the back end. Uh, but after, after that was done, uh, I kind of like asked like all these other things you're doing in the company, uh, why are you still doing those when you can do it differently? Like you have these lists of all the potential customers to call, you have all the salaries and whatnot. And so I spent seven, seven and a half year uh, not my finest moment, but seven and a half years or so, uh, optimizing and building um, company infrastructure systems. Uh, essentially built a web-based system to do management of all the things relating to sales, the customers list, the after and the support afterwards, all the things related to uh, salaries, calculating them, getting them sent to um, the, the, the state in, for documentation purposes. Uh, I was about to uh, get done on all the taxes part. We had a lot of those things built, uh, but then the company went belly up because the owner of the company was caught with narcotics and weapons in his car. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, yeah. pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, it was quite dramatic. Uh, the, uh, the situation that ensued uh, was that I was out of a job and had no money. And the state is supposed to come in and kind of guarantee a couple of months worth of living so you can get back on your feet. But the state decided that since uh, my role was a leader of the tech department, uh, I should have had insight and understanding in the company's uh, all things doing. And I'm probably uh, partially responsible for a bunch of bad stuff that the owner of the company did. 
and so they didn't give me my money. Uh, I went into a kind of depression for half a year. I think nine months later, I agreed to settle with the state and say, I will not hold you legally liable for all the mistakes you did if you just give me the exact money that you owed me in the beginning. I so did not want to sign those papers and do that because I thought the state was the problem here. Uh, but, you know, uh, debt is a very scary and dangerous thing and I already had too much of it. So under duress, I simply agreed to do that. Um, is this in that, Finland, by the way? Oh, uh, no, that was in Sweden. Uh, that was in Sweden, Sweden, okay. At that point. All right, okay, yeah. so in Sweden, yeah. So I'm going to continue this story because I want to go all the way while we're on it. Yeah, yeah, um, no, this is great. <laughs> yeah, so, so after that, I, I developed this idea that I will never again in my life work for someone I don't have um, complete trust in the, the, the moral integrity perspective. And so I stopped looking for jobs and ended up with even less money. Uh, and then my girlfriend uh, made the decision that I should just drop everything and take as much time as I needed to find something that I actually want to do. And we moved out from a cozy little apartment in a relatively large town uh, into a uh, trailer at a farm where my dad lived and to clear some horses and spent some time by my computer wondering what to do with my life. And then I took my driver's license and spent a little bit of the Bitcoin I had saved up from a previous endeavor. I'll get to that endeavor in a moment. And bought an RV and then drove from Sweden all the way down to Portugal, stopping along a bunch of Bitcoin Cash meetups along the way because I figured out something I actually wanted to do. I wanted to get rid of passwords. I wanted to start using cryptography as the authentication mechanism instead of shared secrets. And so I had built this protocol called Cash ID, and I went from one place to another all the way down to, to Portugal. The, the moment I arrived at Portugal, I was in an RV, it's over 30 years old had probably died almost two times on the way there because that was not a reliable vehicle. And drove into the parking place without lights in the middle of the night. And then kind of got stuck in that place for about half a year. Uh, it's a lovely place. I'd happily get stuck there again. Uh, and during that time, I, I kind of lived off of Bitcoin Cash donations when I worked on the Cash ID and Cash account protocols. I just told people, I, I have no money. I'm gonna do this until I can't do it anymore. And if you give me money, I will do it longer. Uh, and, and people kept me afloat. I'm actually really, really thankful for that because the thing that triggered actually getting the RV fixed and driving back home is the founding of general protocols. So, it was at that time where uh, Emergent Reasons uh, reached out to me uh, and told me that he's looking for someone who can legitimately build this smart contract thing that no one else has managed to do yet and there is no tooling for it and he needed someone who, who, who can kind of like make it happen. And I, I'm not an expert programmer. I, I don't have a fancy degree. 
but I, ha I have grit and I, I tend not to give up when I want to do things. And so I sat down and spent time and tried to learn like how to do transaction signing and get all the documentation in order and whatnot. Um, and then drove back up to Sweden. And then in Sweden, we had about half a year before the legal age mandatory schooling starts and we have a kid that we want to homeschool and we didn't like the idea of being forced um, into any particular way and so we fled Sweden to Finland in order to homeschool. Okay, wow. Jeez, this is this is quite the involved uh, thing. Immersion Reasons is in the chat right yeah. now giving his commentary and he says to ask about the epic stuff you did with NFC while you were in Portugal. Right. So in Portugal, I was also working on the, the casual wallet because no one else was building a, a wallet and I needed one. And I was ridiculously tired of the not user-friendly ways people suggest that we should be doing backups on wallets. Um, like on, on the very edge of that spectrum on one side, we have this uh, James on LARP that suggests you should have like big steel machines capable of withstanding thousand degrees of fires. And on the other hand, you have the people that you should only have it in your memory. It's a brain thing. You should keep it there and nowhere else. Uh, and I, I, I don't see my grandma doing either of those, right? And so I figured out how to get the parts of the key that I actually need to store in order to restore it into an NFC tag. And so I changed the backup experience in my wallet from remembering something or writing something down to you, you go to click backup, you hold your card, it vibrates a little bit to tell you that it's done. And then you're done, that's it. And because these NFC cards are low cost and easily accessible all over the world today, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a solution that's practical, right? I can tell my grandma the first time she starts her phone, yeah, you, you know what, I'm gonna do this. See here, I made a copy. Now store this somewhere safe. I'm gonna make one more and I'm actually gonna store this for myself. So if you need help, I can help you. Uh, you know, things like that. Yes. So when we were hanging out together in St. Kitts, you actually demonstrated this to me and it's incredibly, incredibly slick. So for the listeners, what, what you're talking about is so you have your, your phone, right, that you would have your wallet on and then you have like a, it looks like a credit card, basically one of these, uh, yeah, Jet's holding up one now, but just like a, imagine like a blank credit card, right? And you also had one on a ring. So you actually had like a wearable technology one as well too that was that was super cool uh and you just swipe it on the back of your phone it takes about three seconds it's as slick as you could possibly ask for and then the whole backup is is on that uh card right yeah and the longevity for the card is about 10 years or so if you buy common and cheap ones uh if if it stops working while your phone is still working, you can just make a new one. You can have multiple ones. If you make two of them, chances that they are failed together are very low. You can store them in separate locations. You can apply as much security you want or as little security as you want. It's kind of like your, your choice. But it's just very easy, I guess. And that's the, that's the, the critical point of making this stuff 
accessible to people, right? Is it's the, you kind of got to place the burden on the developer, right? Rather than on the user, because the developers, it might be hard, it might be frustrating, and it might take a lot of time, but you've got to think through all these angles to an engineering solution, because at the end of the day, the users don't want to have to solve a hundred problems. They want you to have solved those, those problems on their behalf, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Emergent also says, what about Cash Canary? Do you have any, what, what was that? Uh, Cash Canaries was a project that uh, Emergent asked me to do uh, and the idea was essentially to make a smart contract version of the canary in the coal mine so that in case bad things happen it would trigger and people could see it but you would still kind of have like um, legal protection like I did nothing it just happened on its own it just you know if someone kidnaps me and I don't update it regularly it kind of goes but um, interesting project uh, not enough time spent on actually making any practical solution out of it yet yeah so for people who don't know it sounds like it's similar to this idea of warrant canaries right so there's i don't know all the details of this but there's essentially laws in place and there's a very famous litigation and stuff around the fact that if you are somebody who might be compromised by pressure from government agencies so let's say you were someone like julian assange or something you were leaking these uh documents if the government comes to you and says you need to stop doing this or they put some pressure on you or whatever you can't after that point publish and say the government have come to me well i guess you could but you would be putting yourself at a lot of risk right it would be a you know very risky thing to do in that scenario and there might be legal repercussions there might be other extra legal repercussions right but there was these uh, cases i'm pr probably in the us i believe which found that although you aren't in a position to do that what you can do is you can start uh, what's called a warrant canary so let's say i have on my website i could have one myself i've even considered it actually on bitcoincashpodcast.com i could have a site called you know slash canary and people could go on there and it could have a message saying i have not been you know compromised by the feds right and then the thing is if then the feds did come and compromise me what i would do is i would take that page down and that's that's not doing anything. That's not saying that I have been compromised by the feds, but by sort of killing the canary as it was, that's a signal to everybody to know, <laughs> okay, right. uh, he can't tell us anymore because of... Uh, there's, uh, there's two very clear problems with that solution. One is that it requires an actual action on your behalf, which means that the government can then look at what you did and say that it doesn't matter if you... You know, if you have the legal paper thingy pointed in the right direction, uh, we believe you acted it ill intent and we're going to do something. Uh, the other part about it is that for someone who looks at that page, if the government compromises your website, they can host that page for you, right? And so, as a user, you can't really trust it because the system itself is compromisable in a way that's not really good. But when you're talking about smart contracts that need to be renewed, then in order for someone to compromise that system and maintain a canary you don't want it to be maintained, they will need to be able to acquire cryptographical keys used to sign the continuation of such a uh, canary. And so, if the government 
either does not know about it, and this is the most beautiful part about what you can do with pay to script hashes, <laughs> uh, if they don't know about it, uh, or if they know about it and you, you know, just can't produce the key because it's not within your reach in, in sensible manner. It's like you can have a, a multi-user key that signs things, for example, and they try to compromise one of you and they're like, yeah, here's my key, but you still can't sign it and maintain it because the two other guys have to agree as well. And you don't know who they are and they are not talking with me anymore because I did not sign my key in time or whatever. Uh, but you can also have the, uh, not blind, but, but the hidden canaries, uh, the ones that you, you have this pay, pay to script hash which is just some random number that no one knows what it means. Uh, and there's some money on a place and you're, you, you kind of essentially don't, don't have to say anything. And every now and then that money moves from one script hash to another, uh, revealing that yes, this was a canary and it included the following like information or whatever. And, and you can have it so that it can trigger after some time uh, where anyone can spend the money on it. And so if you share the script that leads to that hash with people you trust or whatever online, and you then get compromised and you can't continue like renewing it or whatever, then they get to a position where like we're passing the timer now and therefore I can take the money in this contract and it's financially beneficial for me to take the money in that contract. And by taking that money, I disclose the actual script and inside of the script is the the, the canary message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. So you have, and yeah. I guess you can do things with uh, time locking scripts as, as well, sort of similar to that, right? Yeah. So it's like, we've got to update it every, so another yeah version of that same idea is like with the website example, just to make clear to people, I could say, I'm going to publish, obviously it has those same problems you said before about being compromised, but you might say, I'm going to publish a message every week on Monday that, you know, um, status all good or something and then if if it then goes a week where i don't publish it then that that's the signal so it's it's not an action that i've done that triggers okay there's a compromise but it's a lack of action right uh giving the same message and it's those same things you can then embed into scripts like you're saying yes but the difference being that in one case you tell people that i will do this every week and the other yeah. one, you say nothing, and after the situation has triggered, the world learns about the situation. And so being able to keep your canary hidden means that an actor that is trying to compromise you can't prepare in advance to make sure that they also compromise the canary because they don't know about the canary. Um, there are lots of similar mechanics in, in security systems. For example, uh, a bunch of people tend to leave uh, Bitcoin wallet.dat files uh, in computers that ha has a little bit of money on it, but not the real amounts of money, and just put that in, in various places in their systems. And whenever that money know, moves, they know that someone has compromised their system. It's a very mm -hmm. simple thing. It's, it's, it's interesting. Technology is interesting. I remember, I think it was Mike uh, Komaransky had a website, and it was like, is Mike Komaransky dead.com or something like that. Is this a similar... I'm pretty sure that was set up so that it was... Uh, he had to make a, a Bitcoin cash just a transaction or something every month. And if he didn't, it would say, oh, something happened. Uh, is this the same kind of idea? Yeah, th that is a canary. That is a definition of a canary. Okay. I remember, too, I checked on this a couple months ago. It said he was dead. <laughs> well, it's, it's as far as I know, I, 
It's back to no. He's resurrected. I thought I I don't know um the details of this, but I had thought that this one was related to he ha- he's like wearing like a Fitbit or something that's monitoring his pulse, and if if it stops, then you know the it'll stop pinging the server, and then it'll say yes. So I thought it was linked to his like vital signs rather than his BCH transactions, but maybe that's just something I've dreamed up. It could easily be an app on his phone connected to that Fitbit to generate the transactions. And if it stops generating transactions, then either his Fitbit has broken or he has actually died. And we can't know exactly. which of those two. <laughs> yeah, well, very, uh, very interesting stuff for people out there who uh, may or may not uh, be interested in canaries. You should uh, certainly look into that and, Probably this is the kind of thing that we need to yeah, explore in a lot of detail and write up some kind of guides and stuff so that people can read through it and learn how it all uh, works in in sort of uh, detail with some tutorials. Is there any good sources for where did you learn all, all about this uh, stuff? The stuff about canaries? Yeah, yeah. Where is there a source that you could recommend or you just picked it up over time? or? How? Uh, most of it from research when uh, me and Emergent was looking at it, uh, about there has been uh, legal canaries in place that I was aware of before. Uh, there's, for example, a um, d- domain DNS service provider uh, in, in in Sweden that was tied to the, uh, the Pirate Bay, uh, who mm-hmm. had uh, legal canaries up so that people could see whether or not they were compromised. So it's, it, it dates back, at least back to there, probably much further. Yeah, I'm just thinking that you, there's no, as far as I know, there's no like Udemy course, there's no degree in uh, legal, you know, coercion prevention type of uh, setup, but maybe there should be, you know, maybe this stuff should be more publicly documented uh, for people who are interested in that. All right, we got to, we got to move on. We got to, we got to hit the the price uh, just quickly like we do every Week this week, the Bitcoin cash price has gone up a bit. It's $133.79 US cents. We are down on the ratio though. One BTC now buys 183.1 BCH and one Ethereum buys 12.6 BCH. So we're down very slightly there too. So it's overall been a good a good week for, for crypto. It's been on the rise, but uh, other cryptos doing better than us this week. So our first main topic is the Bitcoin Cash bull, which has been much discussed on this show, I've got to be honest, over the last probably year. And it's gone all the way from, wow, this is a super exciting potential thing we could have in the future to it's it's coming to it's here to the beta is out to you can all try it to it's got a bunch better. And I have now found uh, in the the stats that um, General Protocols put out recently, that there has been over forty three thousand BCH locked in over three thousand AnyHedge smart contracts since October. It's now February, so in under four months, uh, really, or I guess five months, depending on how you count. Um, so more than $5 million worth of USD. This is obviously a product from general protocols that you're involved with allowing people to either lock their coins to a stable value, which of course uh, ob- ob- obviates the need for stable coins and having your money scammed by Tether. Instead, you can just lock your BCH uh, and it will be fixed. Or for speculating, which of course everybody also loves to do, is gamble their <laughs> their money on 
um, price going up and down in, in crypto. And you can do that too with BCH pools. So can you give us a bit of insight into, you talked about general protocols uh, being started. Uh, how did that come about? And what was sort of the, the founding mission and inspiration for this as the initial product? Right. So uh, a better person to talk about that uh, is probably Imaginary Just Name or Emergent Recents. Uh, they had back and forth discussions and built up the plan for what NHedge would be able to do uh, before I got involved. Uh, my, my involvement was making something that practically functions the way they had described it and then figure out like what things does it need to do, what things do we need to change for it to actually be real. And that led then led into so at the at the time when that was see what are we talking about here this was like 2019 at a, at a guess right and there was still some changes needed in the actual Bitcoin Cash protocol itself in order to facilitate this kind of technology is that right? Kind of, kind of. Uh, so the the Bitcoin protocol did support covenants through a kind of hacking mechanic that reused the signature validation. Um, code pass. You, you could essentially create a copy of the transaction, validate the entire transaction in script, and then based on that, know that the thing you made uh, was true, and then use the data from it. Uh, we managed to make an hedge contract running uh, on that code, and the problem they had is that they were not very precise. And so they had a higher margin for error than we found acceptable. And so we limited the size of those contracts quite drastically. This, um, I think we said something like $10,000 can't be larger than that. And for assets other than dollars, uh, some of them would be very, very limited in use. Um, but that wasn't the, the, the real problem. The, the real problem with making hedge back in the day was that there was literally no functional documentation. And there was two competing systems to make smart contract that sped in and cash script. And neither of them were in a state that was actually good enough for what we needed to do. And the most uh, popular frameworks to, to build on at that point was Bitbox from Bitcoin.com and their REST API. And over the course of the first year or so, uh, we, we, like within a couple of weeks, we had a functioning contract, right? The next was building actual application that faces the user and services that integrates and automates things. And while building all of those things and, and making it happen, uh, the uh, REST API kind of flaked up. The Bitbox development libraries got uh, unmaintained and the the documentation, well, th thanks to uh, Bitcoin Unlimited's um, efforts and Verde's effort to set up a good base set of documentation, we're in a much better place today. But when we started, uh, we had, I think, I think I looked for some way to describe like what data is involved and how is the signing of a transaction, how does that part actually function? And I found three different documentation that said, this is how it works on Bitcoin Cash. And none of them were actually, you know, perfectly sensible. Uh, but yeah, today it's much better. After the first year, we had 
something and it was working and we had also been like talking with people and telling them that you know the way we are doing it is not good hacking things together this way having that precision issues it, it's not gonna cut it for a long term but it does allow us to do something and so we were a couple months away from kind of making a release of something when it became obvious that yes the native introspection and math upgrades are actually going to happen which meant a rewrite of the contract and updating of all the tooling to match uh, but that successfully removed the uh, inaccuracy issues and made the contract much smaller we no longer had to fight the constraints of of that system and uh, after that we, we went uh, full speed ahead to to build the user facing parts that you can see today yeah so people can check that out at app.bchbull.com and uh, give it a go i highly recommend everybody who's involved in bitcoin cash should should definitely do this go and try with one dollar of bch try and hedge it or speculate it on the price of dogecoin or whatever you're doing just to just to see it working because this is some cutting edge stuff that no crypto chain anywhere has except for bch in this very early uh kind of form right so just similar to i guess using the early internet or using uh any cutting edge early um vr anything like that it can be quite fun i think to be one of the first people to try it out because then as things progress and develop you know a lot of people will come in once it's all already developed and slick and they won't appreciate as much the the progress from the early beta versions that slowly improve over time and new functionality is added and so forth so yeah, can you speak about it? Has the team been finding it uh, a large success? I mean, more than $5 million. That that definitely sounds like a, a lot of money, more than 3,000 smart contracts. Yeah, so, this is not trivial stuff, right? Yeah, $5,000 is not trivial. Uh, we're at the size right now where we're comparable to some new, smaller, or obscure thing on Ethereum. And, and that's... That's definitely not nothing. The situation we have is that we weren't really experts in any of the fields, right? Writing contract script, haven't written a line of script in my life uh, when we started with this. And to build the tool we, we have today, uh, we need to handle quite large amounts of money. And so we need to be very, very careful as we move forward. And then we also have to give a good user experience the contract has to be instant. Like when you want a contract, you should get a contract. And to do that, someone has to be the counterparty. And so we had to build this market-making tool that acts as the liquidity provider on the other end. And it's been quite a bit of a journey over multiple generations of uh, market-making algorithms, uh, which hasn't really yielded the best possible fees for users over time. Uh, there has been interesting periods, <laughs> if I say it like that. But we're, we are, we're getting there, and we have some things coming out in a, a week or two uh, that is going to improve that space even more. And our confidence in the system has been growing over time, which means that we don't need to have as large spread or as high fees to kind of cover up for uh, deficiencies in our expertise. It, it's taking time, but we are getting there. Now, while we're getting there, you, you might ask the question like, well, why should I jump in now? Well, why should I use it today if it's obviously going to be better tomorrow? Well, because it solves problems today, right? If you want to stabilize your money and you don't want counterparty risk, then you can get that here. 
it, it, it works. Uh, in fact, I use it myself. Uh, I have a situation where I work uh, dynamic hours, so I don't work as many hours every week all the time. And so I don't know how much money I will have earned at the end of this year. And I need to pay tax. And I don't want the money that I set aside for tax purposes to change in value over time. So once a month, when I get my payment, uh, I actually go to the BCH pool myself and I hedge my money uh, so that my tax money that are going to go to the taxman in the end uh, doesn't end up fluctuating in value. And this is uh, obviously the famous uh, dog fooding, right? Eating eating your own uh, product, right? As they as they say yes. in Facebook. So so you're actually a user as well as a developer, and that's always yes. uh, a really good sign. Yes, and, and that dog feeding goes for much further than just me. General Protocols as a company also has policies for how much of the money that we hold in the company that needs to be uh, hedged to protect against future uh, price changes. Because if the price drops down unexpectedly, we can't just shut down the company because that doesn't leave any future for us. And so we, we have these hedging policies. And when we started, we kind of like had some Singaporean bank, we had some stable coins in one place or another. Practically all of that uh, has been replaced and we're just using an hedge for, for all of it now. Wow, that's absolutely amazing to hear. So one thing I think is going to be quite interesting that I expect to be sort of a forthcoming uh, development in this area, right, is that the possibility is essentially there to have a stable coin, right? But one that is instead of being backed by um you know a centralized issuer who has the money in a bank account and can either deliberately or not deliberately you know they can either be interfered with or themselves just be scammers can sever that link and run off with the money right with bch bull you don't you don't have that problem because it's all backed by like it's like a hundred percent reserve system with all the on-chain bch contributed to the system so it should be possible right that we can have a bch stable coin like a tether equivalent except there is no tether bank account where you redeem right it's just all backed by on-chain bch that if need be can be liquidated on the on the free market but hopefully a lot of the time it would just be traded around and then people wouldn't even need to go and sort of open the contracts and mess about with it themselves in their wallet they could just have you know uh any hedge usd and and just send it around one person to another and not worry about the abstracted uh underlying mechanism is that feasible or, or coming uh feasible yes uh coming not on the short term at least not from us so i, I welcome anyone who's interested in the the topic to actually go there and try and build it because you can make the nhedge contracts today all the tools and libraries are there so provable auditable backing you can do that now you don't need to wait for any further uh having actual like transferable specific and hedge coins requires you to either be able to uh, split and merge contracts at the same time as you're able to choose the uh, payout address for contracts, uh, update contracts with different payout addresses. Uh, both are technically feasible, can probably be built today if someone has the time to sit down and build it. Um, but stable coins as a concept is a different trade-off. It's a different design mechanic than what Anahedge is. And what you say that the value you declared to be the stablecoin value is that it's uncomplicated. I don't have to mess around in my wallet with it. Well, with enough liquidity and with enough movements in the market on a regular basis, you can just make a wallet where you say, wallet, please connect to arbitrary liquidity providers, 
see who has the lowest fee and stabilize my money in the following assets. And you can even set, well, let's not make it complicated. Just do that. Just as a wallet that automatically in the background without you having to do anything, you just you set the, the value you wanted to have and people send you Bitcoin Cash and your wallet automatically hedges it. And what's missing in that part is early redemption being able to spend your money with before the contract goes out. And that is one of the things that is high on our priority list. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Cause I obviously I've used the BCH bull app. What I haven't done is use the integration with Paytaka, right? Who have actually built some of this stuff great into the, like right into their wallet. Can you talk about what was the process of collaborating with them? Like, Oh, uh, the collaboration itself was uh, pretty nice actually. Um, they essentially wanted to do it asked us a couple questions. We kind of went over and described how we are doing it. And before we had time to kind of do follow-up, uh, they had already built it and implemented it. So it's not, it's actually really simple to build. We have done all the heavy lifting as long as you're in the um, JavaScript ecosystem. Making a contract, I, I think if we're gonna ignore the wallet side, like make a key, fund it, prepare, make a transaction, and just look at the contract parts, like three lines of code for you. Wow, okay, all right. Because the one of the things I think is gonna be super interesting, right, is that because the BCH economy is quite small and niche, we're sort of in our own little category doing our own thing, right? And so many bigger wallets, like I'm thinking of like Coinbase wallet or Binance or anything like that, they will have BCH integrations, but they don't even always have, you know, the new address format or whatever. They got it all plugged up at some point. People need to be able to send and receive and they just kind of have left it at that, right? Because they're doing 10 chains and or 100 chains and they're busy oh. with other stuff. But you're, at you're some right, point... Right. But, but look at their wallets and see what they do. Right. Take the Bitcoin.com wallet, for example, with the Ethereum naming system integration. They do build things that are tool or chain specific. They just haven't built the Bitcoin Cash side of it. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is that Bitcoin Cash simply doesn't solve any problem with such a degree of excellency that they get motivated to act on it. Now, that might actually change uh, the things you can build on top of cash tokens is it definitely has potential to solve problems that the other chains cannot solve by design. But if we want all the good things that Bitcoin Script can provide for us, and with the upgrades that we've had to Bitcoin Cast in 2017, that is actually quite a lot of use cases that you can cover, then we need to build a better wallet. We can't wait for someone else to do it. It has to get done. Someone has to sit down and build a better wallet. The wallets we have, they're bad. Yeah, I think that's something that, uh, you know, the ecosystem has been struggling with, but there's been a lot of progress on that on that front in the sense that I think the Zapit and Paytaka teams have been absolutely crushing it. I mean, a year and a half ago, I wasn't even aware they existed and I think they actually did, but they were, you know, they were still much more limited compared to how they are today. So that's been a huge improvement. Obviously, Bitcoin.com was one of the most popular, probably is the most popular wallet, but they've you know, I haven't been super impressed with them. They've been kind of trending downward. So it's nice to see that we have those other alternatives emerging. And, and I guess we might see more in the uh, in the future. But with the, the wallet is really how everyone interacts with the crypto ecosystem. So it's a pretty essential touch point that we have things super nicely integrated in that and that they're well-maintained and that they're funded essentially. You know, Do you have any thoughts on the 
funding plans for wallets because that's also been kind of a, a sticking point, right? Like with Bitcoin.com, they've been adding more advertising. And on one hand, maybe that helps them to stay monetized and um, maintain the wallet. But on the other hand, it, it means everybody has to deal with ads that they kind of hate, right? Do you, yeah. do you see any opportunities? Maybe BCH bull integration. Imagine, one, uh, imagine fee, you have you know? two wallets. And one of the wallet costs you five cents per transaction that the wallet maker just takes from you. And the other wallet doesn't. You would obviously choose the one that's free, right? I would too. It's not a, not a, a no-brainer. Now, if you're going to make a wallet where you can actually take money from the users, you need to provide value. And right now, uh, and I'll reiterate, all the wallets we have are crap. They're bad, every single one of them. And there are things you can do, like we talked earlier, like streaming money, right? If you build a wallet that streams money and you take 0.05% charge for that, I'd use it. I'd be happy to get that feature in a paid format. I don't mind paying for it. It doesn't exist anywhere else. There's no competition for it because no one else thinks it's valuable, apparently. Uh, of course, the, the streaming part requires you have a service provider also streaming, so that might be a bit difficult. But there are plenty of wallets out there that can do specific contracts. And if you look at Electron Cash, for example, they have all these various plugins where you can download from a third party and hook into your wallet. Uh, like the Flipstarter plugin, or the Mecenas recurring payment, or the uh, Deadman switch, or there's, there's plenty of these things. But if you were to make a wallet that has the capability of taking a template that tells you this is what this script is going to do, uh, but in a high level level, like you download a template and it tells you, hey, what you're about to interact with is an NIH contract. In this contract, there are two sides, you are gonna be this side. In order to interact, it's asking for this much of your funds and this is how the contract is gonna behave. And this is the things you can do with it. If you can make a scripting template, a templating system, such that you can build a generic wallet that can do all of those features, then I'd be happy to pay for that. Heck, I pay a monthly subscription, it's fine. I already pay a monthly subscription to my bank I don't want to have, just because they provide the service of um, um, internet identity, which I am enforced to have by state that require it, but um, paying for a good thing is not a problem. Build a good thing and ask people for payment. There should definitely be people wanting to pay for good things. Yeah, okay, so maybe we just need to up our game or explore some different monetization options there, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's always easier said than done, and I think developers can be very focused on uh, what what seems cool or what they think would work for them as opposed to, you know, a mass market is going to be always a different solution, right? Yeah, so that many wallet. Uh, shift towards advertisement or service integrations where they can take out a fee is not, you shouldn't be surprised by it. That is the market that actually works. The wallets that do that, we might not like that they are doing it, but they are acting on incentives and they are doing the thing that is right for them. Um, I, I have no real complaints about them doing it, but I really look forward to a wallet that takes a long-term perspective 
sets up a clear goal and vision for what it's gonna do and what it's not gonna do, and then says, we, we will do this and you will pay us. And then if people don't pay for it, then there isn't a market there and you should be going elsewhere and satisfy a market that has actual needs. Yeah, okay. You touched on cash tokens. We've got a slide yet. Maybe let's skip forward to that one because I think that's a nice tie-in. So Coin.Dance have recently added a countdown timer. So it was 86 days yesterday, 85 days today until the cash tokens uh, lands. I saw some stuff about cash tokens integration with uh, BCH Bull. I'd love to get your thoughts on how is that ecosystem sort of developing? Obviously, it's very hyped. A lot of people have been talking about it, but a lot of people are not necessarily involved in the specific details. Do you think the the progress of the sort of developer tooling is, is coming along? How quickly are we going to see it integrated into real apps uh, when we so hit that 85 days? The, the very fact that there is developer tooling this far ahead of the actual activation and that there are developers building actual things on it, even if they're not uh, ready for like end usage, uh, is already a, a much better situation than most of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash's history. Um, that said, uh, don't expect uh, to be able to see user-facing applications on, on launch day. Um, from general protocols perspective, uh, I, I can say that, yes, we, we do look forward to cash tokens, uh, but we have not spent significant amount of our effort preparing for that release day and trying to do something. Uh, our focus is on making sure that our product becomes sustainable, that revenue is good, so that we keep existing in this ecosystem, uh, and that the thing we have provides value uh, now, not in the future. Yeah, so if you had to pick, let's say, something outside uh, Cash Tokens integration directly with BCH Bull, if you just, uh, in a hypothetical, you know, dream dream world, is there anything that you would like to see the Bitcoin Cash community create with, with Cash Tokens that you might not necessarily be, you know, if there's a developer sitting out there thinking, oh, I've got some free time, what's something I could not? Yeah, 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 yeah. So back in 2004, 14, 15 maybe, uh, there was this protocol called Counterparty. It was a color coin implementation on Bitcoin. I personally used that in order to uh, distribute value across a bunch of people who were cooperating on a mining endeavor. Uh, we, we were, I think, 14 people at most who essentially made shares or share synthetics or whatever you want to call it uh, into our... Um, the outcome of our mining operation, and we bought uh, a, a single KNC something machine at the time. Uh, and then we ran that, and on a regular basis, uh, we paid out the revenue we had back to the owners of those tokens. And we had no idea if those tokens had been sold, moved, who had them, we didn't care. We just, if you have a legit and real stake in this endeavor, then we just sent the money. Now. That was 2014. Uh, I can say that what I really look forward to is autonomous organizations, uh, particularly the business side of autonomous organizations, because just making a distribution scheme is one thing, a tool to distribute towards token holders. But when you add 
the things that make a business run, right? The things that allow a business to take decisions. Who should we hire? What should they do? Is the work they are doing good? Should we stop paying this person or not? Uh, how much have we paid over time? And you kind of wrap that up in a decent user interface and you use tokens as a underlying mechanic to give people authentication roles and the ability to influence the outcome of the company, then you could move to the point where um, making, making a company is less complicated in this system than in the real one. Or the existing one, I guess. They're, they're both the real one. Yeah, the, 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 the <laughs> legacy like... finance mechanics, yeah. Yeah, I was fascinated that you said earlier about any hedge is kind of getting to the size of being a, a, like equivalent to a, a small player in the Ethereum ecosystem. So to expand on that, do you, how closely do you follow the ecosystem in things like Ethereum or or on other chains? Is that something that brings inspiration or is it because this is a unique pro right as far as i know there's no other chain doing anything like this but is there some cross-pollination of of ideas or you just you know so, crack on with we think we're doing this right so, so honestly speaking i i don't keep that good track of the other blockchains and their ecosystems every now and then i try to jump out of my filter bubble and see what's going on and on my Twitter flows and whatnot, I do have people showing up that are very prominently in other ecosystems, but I generally don't really focus on what they do because I haven't seen anyone anywhere else um, like focus on the fundamentals in a way that promotes usage as cash. Everyone else has an idea of like, we're going to build this cool thing. It's going to be NFTs here, or there's going to be some smart contract there, or it's going to be... There's not enough business use cases that I see that's actually valuable. And if you look at the people who are against crypto, one of the uh, kind of argument I've seen people do is like, if you ignore the DeFi market, right, the, the speculation side of things, what else do you have left in these successful chains? Right. If you remove speculation from Bitcoin, then welcome stone. If you remove speculation from Ethereum, then welcome monkey pictures. Right? There's, maybe not even that, because they're speculative as well. Right? There's, what's the tool? What's the utility if you remove speculation from those? Yeah, so focusing more on a kind of yeah business and, and commerce, because when you were talking about setting up the entire company i think they to use any hedge and stuff i think there would be fascinating uh insight that you could give if if there was some kind of um tutorial series or video or something that you produced that explained how all that worked because perhaps other companies in the ecosystem could learn from that uh, as well and, and do do the same thing right i would i would love to to do that it would be amazing to get some more deep because all this stuff kind of comes into as soon as you're dealing with companies you're dealing with like you said accounting and tax regulation and all that and those are real problems that that people have and obviously 90% of the crypto ecosystem or 99% is not bothering to really address those at all they're just trying to make the flashiest next uh, scam essentially so it, it's certainly a niche that if we can 
we can hit on, we can really dominate with with such little existing competition. I I, I would like to think, right? Yeah. So, in in the crypto ecosystem, you you have the the concept of uh, a rug, right? And that's a bad thing. No one likes a rug, but. I argue that uh, rent, utilities, and groceries, that's the rug I uh. want, right? That's where I want to stand on. Uh, and to get rent, utilities, and groceries, uh, we we need to find some other approach than what we have taken so far, because the approach so far has not been working out. And those are all recurring payments, right? They're all unavoidable yes. recurring uh, payments. Which, yes, that, that's yeah, one makes... of the most clear parts about it, is the fact that they're recurring and that they are trivial in nature. Uh, practically all of us, not exactly all of us, but essentially the entire popula- population of Earth in some way pays for either rent, utilities, or groceries. And it happens on, on a daily basis by millions, way too many yeah. people. That's the goal I, I aim for. And I, I look at the other chains and I ask, like, does Ethereum focus on rugs? Oh, yes, they do, but not the rugs I want. <laughs> the rugs where uh, you get no rent, utilities, or groceries instead of uh, regularly paid ones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's. I might have to reuse that. I've never I've never heard that before. That's a that's a good that's a good saying. Bitcoin Cash has. Right. I could see some good. Uh, I made a meme at one time which had the. Uh, it was just a picture of a, a rug and it had put the BCH symbol on it after the coin flex, and then the caption was. Welcome to BCH. Everyone gets a free rug. <laughs> welcome, yeah. welcome to crypto. Everyone gets a free rug. I think that that idea has uh, has potential because it's it's interesting to see right how this whole concept of rugs emerged in a certain way because crypto investors are having to learn, you know, like consumer protection after a fashion in a way that in crypto you're not protected from all rugs and scams. Obviously there are fiat rugs and scams, right? But there's so much more stuff built around it. There's so many more constraints and therefore so much more protection which kind of comes with that against against those things and so the crypto ecosystem has even had to develop its own lingo and its own way of teaching people to avoid the, you know, the same pitfalls that people tend to fall in which I think is just fascinating that uh well, uh, again really... if you go back and you remove the speculation part right how, how many people are going to be rugged if they are able to take their phone and pay for groceries in store right that, that's yeah. not a ruggable situation how, how many people are going to get rugged by sending some money to their landlord to pay for rent not very many but the speculative side of things well that's where it happens so. i don't know yeah no, 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 very, very true. So actually, this ties in nicely then to talking actually, about I'm, I'm the. Actually, I'm actually gonna uh, hang on. I'm, I'm gonna tie this gonna in with something mic. else. All right. So, okay, go on. Uh, I told you that speculation is what provides the ability to rug, uh, unless you're doing any hedge. Yeah, makes sense. There's no counterparty well, risk it. in any hedge. There's no one that can pull that rug under you there. Well, I was going to ask about that actually. So I understand the idea that the contracts are locked on chain and that's all fine, but the weak point uh, or the point that people have been questioning about is the oracles right so the the point is that on the bitcoin cash chain it has no way of referencing information outside the chain right so it needs to yeah. get the price feed of the assets bitcoin cash and usd and euro and doge and whatever from from somewhere so that price feed is 
provided by an Oracle, which can sign cryptographic messages. Now, at the moment, as I understand it, uh, PCH Bull or General Protocols is essentially running their own Oracle. So in some ways, we've just moved the goalpost to now we're trusting General Protocols to run the Oracle. Of course, in future, right, you could have various companies running Oracles and you could even have an amalgamation of oracles and have like a you know a three of five agree that this is the price or uh, that within this certain band that triggers the contract but what happens now if the uh, general protocols just shuts down their oracle to uh, all the people who have existing contracts open are they just stuck forever um, is there an out uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go back one step and say that you're absolutely right that is the risk model right now, and it's not the intended risk model in the long term. It's just no one else stepped up and made oracles, and we can't build these things without having a mechanic to get information into the contracts. Now, the oracles are open source. Uh, the oracle specification is public. Uh, they're not, not in the best of shape, sadly. We'll, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, but if you want to run your own oracle, that is... You know, it's your own ambition that's preventing you from doing that. And um, we would be happy to see other oracles coming in and taking that responsibility off us. We, we don't want to have it. We built it because we had to. As for the actual question, what would happen with the existing contracts? So for the BCH bull contracts, due to an implementation detail, um, they are going to get stuck. And we are going to uh, fish up the keys used for those oracles to sign the individual messages to restore everybody's money to the way they should be. That puts a trust point on us. Um, I'm sorry, that's the current state. I don't like it, but it is what it is. Now, for contract made outside of the BCH bull, uh, there is a, a mutual redemption mechanic so that both parties involved in a contract if they agree on what the output should be, they can end the contract at any time and, and just do what they want if they want the same thing. That puts them in a position where even if the oracles disappear, uh, they can still uh, redeem their contracts. Now, the reason, and, and I want to stress this, the reason why we disabled mutual redemption on the BCH bull contracts is because otherwise there would be a key in your browser that had the power to collude with us and take your money. And we don't, we deliver the code for BCH Bull to your browser. That would mean that we could make a very small change and suddenly at any given time, get to that data in your browser and end the contract early with an outcome that's essentially a rug pull. Uh, so we turn that off to prevent us from doing that at any point in time. Uh, if we had left it on, then for as long as the contract runs, that would be a risk. Now, after the money has moved into the contract, there is nothing that the liquidity provider, the counterparty of the contract, can do uh, to take your money from you because the contract cannot end uh, before time. But if there was a wallet, right? If there was a good wallet out there capable of understanding a template for script, tell you what parts you have, what your contribution to it is and what you should expect and what functions you can run within this contract, then we wouldn't need to have a key inside of the BCH Bull app. We could still use the app as a coordination mechanic. We could give it a good interface. We could let people know what works, set up everything. Uh, but you wouldn't need to move any money 
into the contract in two steps. You'd move it directly from your wallet into the contract, and you'd also be able to provide the mutual redemption public keys necessary to keep mutual redemption uh, alive. And we wouldn't be able to kind of, if someone hacks our server, it doesn't matter because the key is not in the browser anymore. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I didn't know about that mutual redemption option. That makes perfect sense because then that means if I'm making a deal with somebody about the any hedge, then even in the worst case scenario, we can do some out of band negotiation. And I guess in the it's sort of a it's not really like a prisoner's dilemma situation because the money is all locked. So any agreement that each of we're both incentivized to come to an agreement because the default state yes. is going to be that we both get nothing. So it's actually quite quite nicely yeah. aligned in that sense. So why I'll, would... Go on. Uh, I'll also say that it's um, it's not fun uh, and we didn't want to disable this feature because yeah. if, we, if we had it enabled, then we could have had a feature that many people have asked for uh, with regards to, to an edge in the bowl, uh, and that is uh, early contract termination. Uh, if it was possible for your browser and the liquidity provider to agree on an outcome, then we could have just made some code to determine how much it would cost or how much you would get, the same way we do when you enter into a contract in the first place, and allow you to choose, do I want to pay or get money to get out of this contract right now, and therefore have that early termination. The, the annoying part is that we, we can build this feature today if we reintroduce the vulnerability of having a uh, the ability to cancel at any time and therefore making that key actually valuable for the duration of the contract rather than just the start of it. Yeah, so when it comes to the oracles, in an ideal world, uh, like you said, it's not currently the way you, you wish things were. Who are you expecting to run the oracles and why? Is it like large exchanges, for instance, might run it as a part of their service? It might be price aggregators. It might be, I don't know, uh, so, like the Bitcoin Cash podcast right. could run one. Yeah. So, okay. Um, when you talk about an oracle, then you, you're usually like leaning back on the other crypto ecosystem and what they consider oracles to be. And you're looking at alternatives and you kind of put everyone in the same bucket. I, I argue that our oracles that we have, they, they are oracles in name, uh, but they, they are more like an attestation function than they are an, an, an oracle. Uh, the oracles we have, they observe data from somewhere and I don't really care from where, they observe data, and then they sign that at this point in time, I observed this data, here is my signature. Now, when you have something that simple, right, that simple attestation service, then for you to run an attestation service is not very problematic. If you want to run one, set up your Oracle and run it. Right? You need a key, you need some data to observe, and you need some code that at some point in time observes that data, signs it, and broadcasts it to someone somewhere. Uh, it's, it's simple in, in, in theory. Of course, if you want to have it like reliable, and if you want other businesses to start using your Oracle, you don't want to use it for your own purposes, then Sure, then you have some reliability uh, aspects to, to take into consideration. And the distribution mechanics also need to be fairly reliable. And so then you might want to use the Oracle network to distribute the data across the relays that we've set up. Uh, okay. But yeah, an attestation service is, is simple. Now, you talked about 
multiple parties, right? Yeah. Like the oracles that are um, like on Chainlink, seven out of nine or whatever. And yes, you can make an attestation service where multiple keys attest to the same data and you can validate that. But you can also make a contract that takes multiple signatures for multiple sources and uses the data directly. I don't know which is the obvious best. Having the very simple attestation mechanic at the foundation and then you think the contract be a little bit more complex or having some more complex attestation layer and letting the contracts be a little bit simpler. Um, what I do know is that oracles does not happen without incentive, right? They don't pop up in the wild. You don't go out in the forest and, oh, there's an oracle, right? That doesn't happen. What happens is that someone needs or wants something and someone is willing to pay value for it to happen. Now, we, we see on other blockchains where they build specific chains for their Oracle services and the chain itself provides the incentive the same way Bitcoin provides incentive to miners. That is one model. I don't think that model is sustainable because without a legitimate bit business interest generating that value, you have an inflationary system and the tokens that such a chain produces will lose value over time and eventually get to a breaking point where the Oracle sit down and say, hey, I can still get my 740,000 some Oracle token, but no one wants to buy them because these other 10,000 Oracles in the ecosystem also get these and everyone is just selling them on the open market. Um, so, when we were heading down to St. Kitts, uh, I actually found a really good use case um, for the, the scripting capabilities in the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. Uh, you can effectively, with the Cash tokens upgrade, make an Oracle or an attestation service that creates and distributes data locked under a lock script such that usage of that data enforces payment for that data, right? Wow. Imagine I make a token, right? And inside of the lock script where I, inside the lock script that says this and this must happen in order to spend it, I also put the actual value that I want to attest to. Now, I give you that token, say, here, you can use this token if you want to. And you're like, yeah, if I put this token inside of my contract, then I have a sign and verify data point that I can just extract from it. This is great. But at the same time, if I bring that token into my contract, that token, in order for me to spend it, is going to enforce that I also give some small number of money over to another address, which would be the Oracle's payment address. And so you can build Oracle's attestation services that tokenizes their information and makes usage of that tokenization uh, contingent on payment. When you have that, right. when you have that, then you have a market for oracles, right? People can make oracles if they think the market is going to pay for them, and that is a much more straightforward model. And yeah, I'm, I'm I'm hoping to explore that sometime in the future after the cash tokens upgrade has gone live, because that would be wow. a reason for someone else to make oracles that we can use. This 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 sounds yeah very fast because 
as I was thinking, you said, how are we going to monetize some oracles? I mean, one thing I thought a simple model is, right, I just put up a flip starter. I say, everybody pay me, you know, 10 BCH. And what I'll do is I'll, you know, as soon as you pay me, I'll set up an oracle yeah. and I'll run it for a, a year, let's say, or something. No. And then at the end of no, it, as soon as you the get the it, money, the incentive to continue to run it has disappeared because the money is already in your hands, right? Well, yes, any, yes any and no, right? No, 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 no. Must hang come on, from hang the on. future, not from the current time. No, but hang on a second. But we could do it if instead of saying we did it a year, maybe I would run a flip starter that was one month and I would run it for a month and that would then give me the credibility to run it for another month. Or maybe I would run the Oracle myself for a month to build tr trust that I could do it and then say every month run a flip starter and the community could keep funding it if they were enjoying using it for right. their any hedge oracles, right? So, but that's a that's yeah. a simple model. I like I love this idea that you could have it instead that I'm going to run an oracle and I'm going to distribute out the information and you can embed that in your contract. But if you're going to use it in your contract, I'm going to get paid as part of that. You know, that seems like such a win-win to me. Yeah, it, it should be. Uh, as far as I've been able to think on it, uh, it should be. But. You know, practical details is going to show up when you build a practical implementation of it. So just kind of having this like side chat in the in the Twitch chat here. So if I want to hedge on BCH bull denominated in Canadian dollars rather than US dollars, then I can easily make an oracle. But what is the uh, like... So emergence following up here saying that part's easy. Finding a counterparty is typically harder. What? What is? Where's the? How do I? How do I make sense of what my place is? What is the counterparty doing? Uh, right. If I want to just say this is the price of this thing in Canadian dollars, what is the counterparty used for? Right. So. Um, the counterparty not used for anything in setting up the oracle and providing the information. The counterparty is used for entering into an agreement, a contract that behaves in a specific way. In our case, we're talking about the NH contract on BCH pool. Now, when you make an NH contract on BCH pool, there are two parties. There's you, the uh, taker who wants to take a deal, and then there is the liquidity provider, a maker, who provides liquidity to deals. Now, the liquidity provider, um, it does not know what you want until you send it a proposal. And you could propose a contract with any oracle to it. But when the liquidity provider get a proposal, I want to use this specific oracle, it has to make a decision. Does the liquidity provider also want to use this oracle? Does it trust this oracle? Is this something that it expects to exist in the future when it's time to settle the contract? And so that is why I talked about the reliability of the oracle earlier. So that setting up an oracle is easy. Making it reliable and trustworthy is not as easy. But it's still doable. If you set up a contract and you set up an oracle and you run it and you, you store the Canadian price in there and you let it run for three or four months and then you come to GP and say, hey, I have this oracle here. It seems to behave and function as intended. I'd like to use that. We can look at it. We can audit those four months and determine that, uh, yeah, this actually meets our standards. And, uh, maybe we should let the liquidity provider make contract with this. We'll We'll, we'll take a, some precautions. We'll say contract sizes must be smaller than the other assets because we don't really trust this Oracle yet. Maybe duration has to be shorter. And then over time, as we get more confidence and confidence in that data provider, we could raise those limits. 
Yeah, so it or, essentially comes down to uh, you're going to have like three three parties in any con- you have one side, the other side, and the oracle, and obviously. You know, I'm not going to trust a deal with you, Jet, if you're the one running the Oracle, because otherwise you can just feed the Oracle the price that settles it in your favor. Yeah, this was kind of what I was thinking. Like, so if I want to have hedging on or hedging denominated in Canadian dollars, then it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me to also supply the Oracle because I could screw with the counterparty, right? Yes. Gotcha. Now, that is the situation we are in today because general protocols actually are running our own oracles today. So if we wanted to burn all our reputation, that is one mechanic to do a rug. Now, I'll I'll give you some information that will uh, hopefully ease the minds of a lot of people here. Um, The uh, liquidity provider at general protocols uh, is not general protocols. We, We run things for another party. And the liquidity provider is taking contracts on both sides. It's not one-sided. So we can't make an Oracle message that kind of satisfies an outcome uh, without it also satisfying outcomes for trades in the other direction for us. Of course, we'll never be perfectly balanced, but the goal of our liquidity provider is to be as balanced as it technically can be and then extract value in form of premiums and fees. And so... The more successful we are at that, the less room there is for us to be able to extract any value from doing such a rug. But long term, we still, we don't want to run these oracles. We want someone else to be running oracles. And we are going to shift over to some other provider. We're willing to pay some other provider. Right? Listen up. If you're a coder and want to run an oracle and have integrity and how can show us like a business plan, talk with us. Right? We, we can uh, sub-license our code. We, we can open up the code entirely. Uh, there's plenty of options. If you want to run an Oracle and you want to get paid for running an Oracle, contact us. All right. Well, <laughs> let's let's talk after this stream then, you know, because it just has been in my mind for quite a while. You know, the Bitcoin Cash podcast itself, I think, would probably be in a fairly good position to do something like that because it's similar to what you're just saying there. Like, my reputation or the credibility of this show rests on providing accurate information to the Bitcoin Cash community, right? And so it does seem like quite a natural uh, tie-in in that in that way. And obviously, yeah, as we can expand um, things over time, because I love the idea that eventually, you know, in the ideal state, we will have, you know, uh, Coinbase and Binance and whatever, and a bunch of people all running these oracles. And then in people's wallets where they're making these contracts, they can just make it and then it says it just sets the default to you know seven out of nine oracles agree from all these major providers uh you know but then obviously you can also you know tweak and customize it yourself if you want to have some different settings but the default would just be such a high bar of uh decentralized information spread across a number of really large industry players that it wouldn't really be wouldn't really be a problem or you would have such a mishmash of any hedge with different oracle providers that the ability to just rug on any one of them would be severely you know reduced in terms of incentive yeah now these oracles one one might think of them as like they're primarily for any hedge because that's the current use case but actually uh, signed information for for data is useful in many other things uh, if you are a wallet maker and you want to make sure that two different users sees the same price, 
using signed price data rather than using some arbitrary web API uh, gives you a higher degree of certainty in, in that data. If you are making a wallet and you want to be able to tell the counterparty um, that you're sending money to what price actually was, then if you provide the uh, like an op return with the Oracle message and signature, then the counterparty can verify what exchange rate was, was used for, for the calculations and show you, instead of showing you that you got $0.99 or $1.01, uh, if you actually sent $1, it's $1 that comes in the other end, uh, according to, to the data. Sure, it, it's still, price is a, a, a flimsy thing that moves around all the time, and different people have different viewpoints and values, subjective and all that. But from, from my perspective, uh, one of the things that are necessary in order to make a good wallet is to be able to tell people where money comes from and what it was for and um, like when did it actually happen. Uh, today, a wallet can tell you that it came somewhere between block X and X plus one. Uh, that's a maybe 10 minute difference or maybe two hour difference can be a very, very large viewpoint, like a very vague time difference. But if you embed an Oracle message in an op return, well, you have the exact time where that price measurement was taken down to the minute level. So you can show the minute the price, the, the transaction was sent because this data could not have existed before then. So this is like a boundary in one way. Um, so yeah, o Oracles are good for more things than just speculation. I'm curious. Oh, we gotta we gotta start somewhere. <laughs> is it Go is it head. possible to have like pass through uh, oracles in contracts? So say you have um, something like an oracle for USD to Canadian, and then you have uh, Canadian to BCH, and then you have um, USD to gold, right? But we don't have a Canadian to gold. Is it possible? I don't even know. Yes. I think I've okay. chained them together yeah, yeah. essentially. Like yes. if you want to translate a language and you've got, you know, French to English and oh my god, never mind. <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> yes, yes, it's much easier to do on the math side than the language side. Uh, so yes, you can do that. But the contract has to be set up for that specific use case. And so the contract needs to know which oracles to use and how to to use them. It, it's perfectly doable. Um, there's okay. been people who has talked about if we can do this for um, uh, the BCH bull uh, in order to allow people to speculate on non-crypto markets, uh, essentially link fiat and gold together and just ignore crypto altogether. Um, it's, it's a bit tricky if you're going to make the user interface nice, right? Because you need this counterpart, the liquidity provider, and that liquidity provider has to kind of know what, values is in that market and how to behave. And there has to be enough volume for it to make sense to do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely doable. Okay, Emergent Reasons uh, points out as well, it's important to note that if you're basically frauding with your Oracle, anyone can 
like call you out essentially by publishing a met like if i'm uh publishing oracle messages this is the price this is the price this is the price and then i put in a dodgy price to try and fraud on a contract then anybody else can uh detect that and publish look jeremy's a fraud here's the here's the info here's the crypto sigs boom like no yeah. no question about it right so that, that's where the accountability comes in as well too yeah, it, it goes further than that, uh, because all contracts that are settled on chain includes the Oracle information, and the Oracle network itself relays the information. Uh, if anyone anywhere feel like it, they can just start monitoring the chain, and whenever they get an Oracle message in a contract on chain, they can check if it corresponds to the Oracle message from the Oracle relay network, the public data. And if they claim to be for the same sequence number, but they happen to contain different data and different signatures, then you have a cryptographical proof of fraudulent behavior, and you, you should go to the police and do that way. And you can also go whatever other ways you want to enforce uh, what kind of rules you want. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's signed. It's cryptographically signed. There's, we can't not take responsibility. Yes. So this kind of comes to that whole idea of Google started with that motto, don't be evil. But the kind of one of the unofficial crypto models is like, can't be evil, right? That there's no way yeah. around it. If the maths adds up, then then that's it. You're a fraud. There's no question about yes. it. <laughs> well, I, I absolutely prefer a world of can't do evil over a world of don't do evil. Uh, sadly, for the oracles, we are actually out the don't do evil because we are capable of generating messages that are fraudulent. Um, there, I don't know if there exists a solution to the Oracle problem anywhere. Uh, there's a lot of mitigations to it. Like people talk about Chainlink as this great thing because it allows you to do seven out of nine or five out of 12 or whatever N out of M oracles have to agree or take average of something or remove the edges of it and take the average of the center. There's a ton of different ways you can do uh, data when you do oracles, but they all still rely on external data. And that external data is not validated in the first place. And if it were validated in the first place, then it would be trivial to put it in a contract and not have a bunch of middlemen. And that's why no matter what we do, until we find a way to bring real life data in a cryptographically verifiable way into the digital system, there is going to be trust in the Oracle side. So could you do, could you do, well, this is where it seems to me that there's got to be some tie in here with proof of work, right? Is there a way that we could mine a chain of Oracle messages such that you were essentially backing with your, just like you do for Bitcoin mining, you were backing the veracity of your Oracle price with the proof of work hash? So what you're saying there is that you're going to weigh two incentives against one another. One is the incentive of future income, and one is the incentive of the, the income from a rug. And you can try and build a system where that future income is higher than the, the rug income and, and get uh, an incentive protection. Now, that is much better than nothing, and that is why I want oracles to get paid when their messages get used because then they can look on chain activity and see how much money is coming in and determine whether or not that stream is going up or down or whatever. Uh, but there is one way you can go on top of this, and that is the collateral way. 
where an oracle puts money into a contract yeah. where anyone can take this money if they provide two, two competing signatures for it. And so the oracle say that here's, this is my real incentive not to defraud people because defrauding hurts me. Uh, that requires an oracle with very deep pockets capable of storing more money in such a contract than uh, the, the value that people want to use it for. And yeah, maybe. But not entirely, like let's say, well, that's right. You could, uh, I mean, and you can combine these systems, but in that system, it's still like, let's say I'm running the Oracle. I could put up, you know, five BCH, uh, you know, in the pot, essentially uh, backing my own credibility that if anybody can prove that I've frauded by putting out two different messages or a wrong message, then uh, you'll be able to take the five BCH. Well, then that means basically anybody should be able to make, you know, contracts of one BCH, but you could have a hundred total BCH all in one BCH increments of everyone else's. Like, it's not like I've put up five BCH, therefore the system is secure up to five BCH. No, it's probably more like individual contracts are somewhat guaranteed up to that limit, right? So if you don't have this, then as I said before, you have the incentive to do a rug, the value you can extract by doing a rug. And then you have the incentive of doing honest work, the value you can extract over the future by doing honest work. And those two are directly um, in, in contradiction with each other. When you add the collateral to it, the only thing you do is that you artificially inflate the honest side so yes. that it takes longer for you to reach the other. And as you said, you can't measure it on a uh, like one contract that measures on the cumulative amount of contract. And that's why I say that such an oracle needs to have very, very deep pockets. There might be some way to do leverage on this. I don't know. <laughs> it would be fun if you could use any hedge in somehow on a speculative thing where people can see that if they defraud me, they lose the outcome of this speculative contract that has a very high yield right now or something. Maybe I put one BCH in at 10,000x leverage against someone else, but then they have to have all the capital instead. It's tricky. Yes. Okay. Well, anyway, this is all uh, super interesting, but we've got to move on because I do want to get your thoughts on another couple of uh, uh, topics before we, before we run out of time. So I wanted to ask you about Townsville and being in the Bitcoin Cash City because you went to Australia and lived, I believe, for a couple months, right, in uh Townsville in Australia, where there is probably, you know, the second highest Bitcoin cash adoption per capita and maybe the highest by total number of merchants and so on uh, after St. Kitts, right, uh, for a, a couple of months. So I really want to get your your take on that, especially as you also were in St. Kitts. Maybe you can compare and contrast your two experiences in those locations. Well, You've been in both places as well, right? So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give my thoughts afterwards. I, that's <laughs> yeah, right, but uh, I want to I want to hear your take, yeah. and then I'll give my take. Sure, sure. Uh, my take: uh, Townsville is great. I love Townsville. Uh, if I if it were a realistic alternative, uh, I'd move. I, I'd literally just upend myself and move over to Townsville. It's that great. Uh, but it also has like uh, drawbacks. Um, it doesn't have the big chains on. You can't go to the big grocery stores. You have to go to, to small mom and pop stores or whatever. Uh, it doesn't have full coverage of everything you need to do, but it has a damn good coverage overall. It, uh, it has some stale data. So you try to go, you spend your money and some places don't take it anymore. 
which is a bit of a problem. Um, it has, I think essentially all the people using it down there has been using the bitcoin.com wallet. So if you use something other than the bitcoin.com wallet and there's issues, then no one has a clue. Uh, I, for example, I used the BitPay wallet when I got down there and I had multiple payment failures. And uh, the, the reason turned out that I just had a bug in my wallet. Uh, it rounded the payment number uh, to four decimals where the other wallets did not. And so I ended up sending like 99.9999% of the amount I should have or just slightly more. And uh, yeah, it was not a fun experience to... Uh, to try to explain to them that I'm not trying to defraud you, I just have a bug in my wallet. Uh, they're all nice. Uh, every single person I, I had the issue with, I went back and I talked with again and we sorted everything out and it's all good. And I then switched to Bitcoin.com wallet in order to not have more issues while I was there. But uh, yeah. And what Warren do you think, St. Kitts or Townsville, you know, like which has sort of oh, more merchant no option or or what do you have uh, more confidence yeah, in? For, for, for me, that's a no-brainer. Uh, that, that's Townsville. Okay. And what, what leads you to that confidence? What specific indicates? What was so, there more merchants or better support? or? When I was in St. Kitts, I was at the hotel, and everything in and or around the hotel was well supported. It was very clear; everything just worked. No, no complaints or issues there. When you went to town, however, even places that like should take Bitcoin Cash had some issues. Like they, they kind of didn't want to, but okay, if you if you really insist, then maybe. And the amount of merchants is. I don't know if they're actually lower in St. Kitts than in Townsville, but just walking around town, I just didn't find merchants. It's I, I didn't I, I saw two, I think. Uh, but around the hotel area, it was great. While in Townsville, um, scooting around on my little scooter in the nice weather there, uh, there's stickers everywhere. You, you see, Bitcoin Cash is very prominent visually in Townsville. And when you talk with people about it in Townsville, uh, they're either really on board, like um, politically on board, they really like the idea of money that behaves the way Bitcoin Cash does, uh, or they're speculatively interested, and then they're curious about the future. But I, I have never met anyone that's like, no, I don't, I don't want to take it, or... Uh, that, that's not right. I, I did go to a few places that say we don't take it anymore. They obviously don't want to take it. But I've never gone to a place that says we do take it, but we don't want to take it, but we still do take it. That that part I've not seen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. So, yeah, I went, it uh, would have been a little bit over a month ago, I guess, while I was back in Oz, I took a trip up there for a, a weekend. I saw the Bitcoin Cash City offices. It was super cool, actually. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. They've got a nice building with a huge Bitcoin Cash uh, outside, and they parked the cars, the Bitcoin Cash wrapped cars outside there. And that had made seemed to make a big difference in the local environment. That's something I really noticed was that the locals and people around would like you said it's very prominent visually so they can they have that area in the center of town where they've just dri 
driving down that street or walking down that street and it's in the back of their mind like this is a real thing it solidifies to them that it's not some online you know scam or something because not only do they see the stickers at a lot of merchants or maybe they see someone paying for it but on the they know these are the guys here like if they felt they had a problem even though technically they're not sort of bitcoin cash you know support in the traditional sense they thought oh i could go there and ask those real people that are sitting in that office what you know what's going on or get more interest or understanding and not that necessarily a lot of people were doing that but the fact that it was there was very reassuring to them i found as a as a general rule i would say probably yeah per capita maybe saint kitts like you said saint kitts was very concentrated around the hotel and everything like that townsville had way more merchants than i was expecting i was actually genuinely blown away that how many people were uh, accepting it but the problems with accepting it were sort of similar to the ones that you see in saint kitts it was very interesting how the same problems recur in terms of like things like people not recharging their phones or yeah, uh, so not so not being familiar with it you know <laughs> And it really just, a lot of it seems to just come down to, it just needs to hit a critical mass. That's the yeah. one little bit that we need to figure out how to get it. And maybe a huge price surge would create enough excitement to do that. But it seems like it's so close. It just needs a little shove of excitement to get to that critical mass. Yeah, so the problems they have are the same problems that Bitcoin had in 2014, right? The merchants yeah. back then were also mom and pop stores or local cafes and restaurants and whatnot. And they too forgot to charge their devices and they too forgot to train their personnel and these things. It, it just it just happened. So we, we had a lot of time to make the situation better. And there's definitely ways we can make it better. When I was in Townsville uh, on my 10-week stay there, I had a side project. And my goal with that project was twofold. One was to make sure that the people who are doing the onboarding and keeping that ecosystem alive are able to see when and where that ecosystem is failing. And the other goal I had, which I did not say explicitly, so if they're listening to me now, they'll get to hear it for the first time, uh, was that I wanted to <laughs> change the incentives around what they were doing such that they value the right thing. Because in a lot of places in the world today, we talk about merchant count or merchant per capita. That's irrelevant. You should be talking about how much value you are giving those merchants, right? How much money are the merchants earning by doing this? You should talk about how much the spending is, how much money moves through that ecosystem, because that is what really matters. And so when I was there, I built a simplified spreadsheet as a web page where you can put up the name of a merchant and either their address or their extended public key. Uh, it would go on chain and it would fetch all the information for you. And then it would make some basic analysis and say, this is how much uh, has been going on and, and, and when. And so if your merchant that you have uh, does not have any activity in seven days, it gives you a little warning triangle, right? something to fix. And if the merchant have had activity, uh, but that activity is low, it gives you some other symbol. If the merchant has a big stack of money, then 
you know, they shouldn't be so public about all their money. That's a risk. Also, you might want to teach them how to do backups and whatnot. So it's still useful information for the people who are doing onboarding. Uh, at the start of that process, I just went to places and I took their keys when I did payment and I made this board for myself. Uh, but um, sometime in, uh, I decided that the privacy for these merchants is more important and I built that XPub and started uh, advocating that they should switch over and use XPubs instead of uh, single keys. What I learned ultimately in Townsville is that they are great at getting merchants on board. They are great at projecting an image of success. They have a perfect viewpoint. Like if you go there, people who don't know anything about crypto haven't used it whatnot. They have a positive view on it when, when they just go around because the media around it is positive. When they hold their um, meetups, they have nice little flashy color balloons and they park those Bitcoin cash cars out by the street. It's very, very clear that people are enjoying themselves, having a good time, and that Bitcoin cash is involved in it in some way. So people have a very strong feeling that Bitcoin cash is successful in Townsville, but they don't have spending. They don't have the people that walk down to the store and spend their money in it at the scale that is necessary. So if you were to look at all the data from Townsville, you will see that there was a period of time back around the conference where spending was actually in a fairly good shape. And then COVID happened and everything kind of, you know, tourism is not the best under those circumstances. Uh, but I don't think it has ever really recovered. And I think something needs to be done to make it more valuable, not for the merchants who take it, uh, well, for they too, of course, but uh, also for the, the, um, just the people who are supposed to spend it. Like there needs to be a strong value proposition. Why should I pay with crypto when I already have my fiat credit card in my pocket? For me, as a tourist, that became self-evident within like half an hour of getting to Townsville. My car just didn't work in some places, right? And then I needed something else. Uh, it's also um, um, filling up my card with money is more problematic for me that has an income in crypto, but most people don't have their income in crypto. So that doesn't really mean much. Yeah, it's a fascinating little experiment, you know, and I think that we're just in a bit of an awkward middle ground at the at the moment with regards to we have a couple of these adoption hotspots and things are kind of, they are working. Like when we were there at the conference or when I was in Townsville, it does, it does work. You can pay people. There is an economy. There is, you know, merchants adopted and so forth, especially when we had the St. Kitts conference and you just had all those people arriving at the same time. It really proves that if you get a couple hundred people who are all there with preloaded with all the knowledge, the wallets and the Bitcoin cash. It was great. Even just among the people in the, in the, within the conference, there was loads of transactions. Everything worked smoothly. There was not problems with, Oh, what about, you know, you're from this country and I'm from this country. And do you use split wise? And like, there was none of that. It all just went great. We just need to be able to create that, that kind of, critical mass seems to be where we're struggling as a community. And a lot of people are a bit down on the whole merchant adoption side of things because so much time and effort has gone into it. And while it's made some progress, it hasn't really 
you know, broken through. So people are trying to think, well, how can we do things online or how can we be more innovative with cash tokens and contracts? And there's got to be a way to bring bring these things together. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm yet to be convinced. I, I, I love what you're saying about that dashboard because I can see a whole suite of tools that you could build with, especially if they were publicly viewable where people could go on a map and it would have, you know, the merchant adoption map curated by someone like Bitcoin Jason, who's there and it had all the, um, you know, the stats of what merchants have been used and how much money they've kind of made are obviously subject to their privacy, right? So I don't know. There's a so, lot of things to be built. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. So um, quite a long time ago, uh, I think I talked with Akane about like, how, how do you get merchants to, to stay active? And I learned that um, she has meetups fairly regularly and she was using kind of this pulse of what merchants are working out and what are not and try to schedule her meetups in locations where she thought the merchants needed a little bit more activity to stay engaged and, and keep their personnel educated and keep the device charged and all these things. And that is a, a, a good, good thing to do. Uh, but you need data, right? You need to know that you're, you're, you're spending your time to do, to do worthwhile choices. And so having this information about the merchants to know like which ones are doing well, which ones are not doing so well, allows you to focus your efforts in a better way. I know in Townsville, the uh, the onboarding team they do marketing videos every now and then right they they put some stuff on YouTube and say come look at this merchant that takes Bitcoin Cash and that's good uh, with with more information they can make sure they target better choices for these merchants now before I move to some other subject uh, I want to say that a common misconception you could have when you try to do this is that you should focus on the least valuable, like the one that doesn't work, take the one that has fewest people or no payments for a long time and try to get that one work. Don't. What you should do is you take those that are fairly successful and make them more successful. Because if you can project a very strong image of success, other people will want to join. They will think it is good and they will come for you. You don't have to and keep all of them alive, keep the really good ones alive and make sure that they're really providing value. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? You've got to sort of uh, emphasize your strengths, right? And certainly, yeah, I think there's there's just so much work that could be done in making better tooling and more effective. Like the, the passion is there and the potential is also clearly there. We just haven't completely nailed the formula for rolling it out and and getting an, an economy going and perhaps we just need things to shift a little in our favor you know a crypto bull run to add a bit of excitement uh and give the community some more resources to develop uh, some of these things or the success of you know cash tokens bringing a, a lot of new people into the ecosystem could be another thing that uh, makes it happen there but yeah certainly the, I, that's one thing i just took away so much from st kitts and, and townsville really was just the potential is that it can work. It's maybe yes. it's not a global success everywhere, but the model has been has been proven. It has actually 
been uh, demonstrated. And if we can get it going in one place, then, you know, it can virally spread uh, along from there, particularly if there was, you know, like an inflation crisis or even with like the coronavirus, you know, you said that that took a hit to the merchants. But uh, Jason spent a lot of time, you know, emphasizing to me that that also made people a lot more aware of the kind of government interference that made them a lot more sort of sympathetic and interested in the in the Bitcoin Cash mission as a result. So the you know there's swings and roundabouts to those kind of things, I guess. Yeah, but or- those people are not the vast majority. So if if you want to get successful, uh, it's probably better to uh, try and find ways that you can provide value that is tangible, immediate, and something users can just feel right right off the bat. Uh, you, you can, of course, those people who have those fears and want to protect themselves against such, out, such outcomes, sure, they, they're valid use cases and they're more than welcome to be here. But I don't think you get your rent, utilities, and groceries to adopt Bitcoin on that matter. To get that to happen, uh, I think you need to sort out the issues we have with our wallets, because if I open my bank up today, it's better than my wallet. And we need to be better than, than them. And we are, in, in a lot of cases, we have fewer middlemen, we have lower costs, we have higher uh, speed to finality. We have a lot of things that are going for us that are good. And more importantly, uh, we have the technical capability to do non-custodial solutions for a lot of things that they simply cannot offer. If we can just build those services, the things that add real value to people and to do it in a way with less risk and less cost, and then get our wallets up to the state where they're at least equal in in how good they are to the bank apps, then then we'll have a fighting chance. But I don't think we'll stand a fighting chance uh, as long as people can compare it in their wallet and just see in, in less than 30 seconds that their banking app is better than our wallets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense. So maybe a focus on wallet apps over the next year can be a huge uh, a huge improvement, certainly. And like I said, there's there there's signs of optimism in that direction. I would say too. It doesn't all have to start yeah, start from. There's nothing. a lot of people who are trying now. There's a lot of new wallets that are on the go. I don't know if we have anyone with like very large backing or or a lot of like high quality expertise behind them at the moment. Uh, but we definitely have a lot more wallets coming in in the ecosystem and people who are doing new things that simply wasn't possible before. I left you a link on Twitter in, in a DM okay. uh, to the uh, merchant yeah. dashboard in case you want to share it because some of the listeners want to okay. you know, track their merchants in a good way to help them you know, get to a better place. Uh- and we can just share this like this is not a, a privacy concern for them or no. i mean i almost uh, feel like i want to double check with uh, jason before i show it you can double check and you can do whatever you want with it uh okay if you go to the link what you will see is an empty dashboard with nothing on it because yeah. there is no backend this is a front-end only application and so all the data that you provide into it stays in your browser um mm. and you can if you want, you can verify, check in the network tab, see if it doesn't send anything. Uh, it's hosted on GitLab. It's not even running on my servers. And okay. there's no private keys and there's no money involved. It's just for observability and making better decisions. Right. Yeah, You can always try. Uh, put in a uh, public key of something that you know. You can take uh, my Jonathan 100 cash account, the public key of that, if you want to see my public history, for example. 
Can you see how many transactions I have with the sizes of more? Okay, how long wow. it's been since I got my last one? So this is, it's almost like a, a different form of a block explorer in a roundabout kind of way, actually, when you think of it like yeah, that. Wow. Kind of, except it doesn't explore blocks. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. An address explorer, maybe. Uh, yes. Jet, yes. You, you, you're muted. There. A contextual <laughs> address explorer. Uh, that's kind of one way to say it. So I guess uh, I, I was going to also just touch on, you know, at the end of the show, we always do a uh, message to the community where just anything that, that people really need to know, I guess that message about wallets certainly seems to be uh, a bit of a theme. Is there anything else that you think we should really be focusing on or uh, learning from in the current crypto environment, Jonathan? Well, things to learn from. Uh, Townsville and their very good, um, they create a very good climate for business people. If, if you talk with some business people in Townsville, like, do you want to take it? Then because they have a strong image of success, um, it's, it's probably a lot easier for them to adopt new merchants than it is for most places I've been in the world. If there's any place in the world that has a lot of users and not very many merchants, I'd be very interested to hear about how they achieved that and what they did differently so we can learn from that too. Uh, I think we should absolutely learn from the worst competitors we have, the, the, the existing banking systems and the things they do. Yeah, for, for me, wallets is a, a really big pain point. Uh, I think it's the, the first thing a user sees when they interact with the system. It's the thing they come back to over and over and over again. Um, it's, it's really one of the most important aspects for me. But if you look at what a bank provides, then maybe they provide a savings account. This is slightly different from a checkings account, which is slightly different from some other account. People want these different things for different reasons. And I have yet to see a wallet that presents the various things you can do with crypto from the use case context, right? Mm. Uh, we can do some things in crypto that most banks still struggle to do, like proper multisig. If I want to have a shared family economy with some money earmarked for different purposes and whatnot, then currently it's easier for me to do that with crypto than it is with the bank. Uh, so that's good. Um, I wrote an article 2013-14 uh, called Bitcoin and the Family Economy. Um, that's my response to having heard about the BitPay wallet and multisig the first time. And I outlined in that the possibility of an application where you could say that this is college fund money that is my kids' keys. I happen to also have a key in here so that I can recover in case of disaster or in case of a house burns down, I can you know, get mm. the money out and, and still give the kid a good, good life, but at the expense of that college fund. Um, those kind of things in a visually appealing way is kind of still missing. Backups. Yeah, I hate backups. <laughs> yes, we're going to have to get some more of those NFT uh, card integrations into things, definitely. When you did that, I was like mind blown. That was the slickest thing with the ring on your finger that you had it all programmed into. That, that was amazing. So yeah, hopefully and get some more uh, engineering work done on that and uh, be rolling out something like that at some point. Yeah, you bring in this, uh, you got this got this up now just for people to have a quick look at. Uh, yeah, so I brought it up. Uh, hold on, let me bring it back up. I brought it up and took a look at the empty dashboard or whatever, but 
So after I post in an address, what do I do? Do I just click this plus? All right. So you have uh, input fields there under merchant. This is name of the merchant and address or extended public key. If you type in a name for what you want to call it, and then you paste an address or an extended public key, and then you click the plus icon next to it. Oh. If it's still working, then it should give you a line in this spreadsheet, and it should start synchronizing from the blockchain the data. Yep. Cool. And when it's done, you will maybe have a warning symbol all the way to your left, and you can change what fiat currency you want to have as a reference currency in case you have that. If you have a bunch of merchants here, uh, you can click the uh, floppy disk icon to indicate that you want to save this file, and it gives you a JSON file you can store in your computer. And so you can go someplace else and load it with the folder icon. Uh, so again, I, I don't have any of the data. There is no backend to this. It works. It's a bit slow. Uh, it's not polished. It's not a final you know, corporate product. Uh, but if it helps someone, uh, then then I'm happy that they made it. Okay. Yeah. Super cool. We'll leave the we'll leave the link to this in the show notes so people can check it out and, and play with it themselves as well. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of people uh, trying out. People love uh, new tools and stuff. But that's uh, we're kind of out of time here. So I was just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> wrap up the wrap up the show as always i've got to give the shout out to our patrons ricky and hp check out bitcoincashpodcast.com for uh, all the info about faqs and everything if you're new to bitcoin cash or if you've never been there and read up on some of the stuff i've got there please do there's a lot of info i spent a lot of uh, time writing up there's now uh, cash tokens FAQ as well for people and an any hedge one as well too so if people are curious about that loads of links to more info thank you to everybody who donates to the show and uh, we've got to give obviously shout outs so where can people find more of you I'm on Twitter but I'm not very active on Twitter I'm on Reddit but I'm not particularly active on Reddit either um I am very active on Discord at the General Protocols Discord, but that's not public. Um, I don't know, actually. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest to reach me. Okay, all right, Twitter, and that is uh, well, we'll put the link in the description, obviously. But it is Monster Bitar. Is that how you say it? M O N S T E R B I T A R. Monster Bitar. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's Swedish. Uh, it, it's pronounced Monster Bitar. Uh, it's it's a, essentially two words. One is the word monster, and the other is parts. Um, it's uh, a, a very old reference from when I tried to make a backend framework in PHP, and I wanted to have components to fit together in interesting ways. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. That's some deep lore I didn't know. My Swedish, uh, as you might imagine, is uh, quite quite lacking. <laughs> no <worries. laughs> But I'll 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 work on that. I've never been to Sweden, but I I should uh, go check it out. I. My former uh, CTO was uh, Swedish. He was actually a, a great guy. So uh, I'm very, uh, you know, enthused about the prospect of, of checking that out. All right, cool. So, Jet, do you have any uh, shout outs or anything you want to? Nope. Okay, nothing. And yeah, nothing really from me this week. Everybody just keep uh, plowing forward to it. Shout out to the wallet developers. Shout out to PayTucker, Zapit, the Bitcoin.com team, uh, Electron Cash. 
anybody stack wallet, anybody else making any wallets, keep keep cracking away on it because yeah, I think that's a good message. That's certainly where we need to tighten up our game and get things get things right. So that'll do it for this week. Until next time.